Welcome to the Learning and Development Podcast. I'm David James from 360 Learning, and each episode I chat with guests about what lights them up in the world of people development. In this episode, I'm speaking with Donald Clark about the potential of generative AI in L&D. But before we get into it, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do give us a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice to help others to find us, and thank you if you've done so already. Now, let's get into it. Donald, welcome back to the Learning and Development Podcast. Thank you, David. Good to see you again. Uh, now, we only recorded a podcast episode on AI in L&D a few months ago, but a lot has happened since then. Could you bring us up to speed with the advance, uh, advancement sorry, in generative AI since the end of last year? Yeah, the, so I think it's important to remember that the AI has been, it's not even been a slow burn. I mean, it's been, there are three levels to the history of AI. One is... It's been around since Euclid, who put the first algorithm in his book. The, I often say this, you know, we had two and a half thousand years of mathematics to get to this point. Mm. Huge amounts of theory and statistics on uh, probability theory on AI itself. So that big long tail and stretch, uh, which is the accumulation of knowledge in mathematics, because AI is, after all, maths and software. It's all it is. Uh, and then we have the more recent era since 1956 with the big conference at Dartmouth. In the year of my birth, and I went to that college at Ivy League in the States, and that's where I first got into the AI thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but, and then we've had a sort of what they call a sort of winters and summers of AI, and that's mostly a, an academic research term. So it's actually mostly defined by how much money they had to spend to burn or use to their advantage <coughs> in research around AI. But really, I don't think that, I don't. I think this has really been happening in anger for twenty years in our world. Let's call it the learning world, which is what today's podcast is about, because we had the internet, and when the internet came along, there were several dimensions. Those AI was sort of in there anyway. So Google search. I mean, we have to remember that Google search is the big thing here. That's the relationship with knowledge that changed. We could search and retrieve and find things, and that's been around for twenty odd years. So, a. Mm. Uh, We've had AI all of that time. It's been, you know, and let's not imagine that that's not fundamental to the learning. Who doesn't use it on almost a daily basis? Mm -hmm. And of course, you've got Google Maps when you're in your car. We almost forget that AI actually is what drives all this. And all these interfaces we've been using all the time have been tiled by AI. All your social media timelines mediated by AI, all that sort of stuff. So there was the big long tail, the two and a half thousand years. There's the 20 year stretch where we've had AI just as a hidden invisible hand behind almost everything we do online. Mm. But then something interesting happened on the 30th of November, 2022, mm -hmm. which was the release of chat uh, GTP, GPT-3 mm -hmm. or 3.5. And uh, of course, we, we know what happened there. The usual quote is, of course, it's a bit of a cliche now, is that it reached a million people within two days, 100 million within two months. And it's probably at hundreds of millions, billions of abuses uh, since. Mm. And so in a matter of just five months, this thing is the fastest piece of adopted technology ever in the history of technology. And I wrote a whole book about learning technology and history technology, going back to the caves in Altamira, writing, printing, the internet and so on, you know, the first learning technology book. And... Uh, What's interesting here is this is another big bang. I've always said this, you know, I've been saying this for ages, that AI is a big bang like writing, and I think it is. And it, it's, 
it's a big bang in this. It's not such a big bang for me because, uh, interestingly, I think if you look really, there's another aspect to the history here, and that's its relationship with learning. Hmm. So what we had was a really interesting thing is right back to the beginning of this, of the of the 20th century, uh, with a guy called uh, David, you have uh, Hebs, uh, Donald Hebs, his name is, same name as me, who first actually identified the similar, the, the learning process in the brain as neurons that fire together, wire together. It's complicated, but that's the sort of, the summary of it all. Now that was the early part of the 20th century. Uh, century, you know, Donald Olding Hebb came came up with that idea, and that eventually, through people like McCulloch and uh, Pips, they started to play around with the idea that a neuron could be represented, a learning neuron could be represented in electronics, and they were they, they actually did this for real. And then you had some really interesting people. I mean, these are near geniuses, really, in my view. Frank Rosenblatt who actually takes the real logic of a neuron and makes enormous advantage, uh, advances there. Then you have Rumel Hart, and then some names in AI. Anybody who watched AI will know Jeffrey Hinton. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton's uh, actually uh, an English uh, guy who now works in the States, incredibly important guy because he invented, I think, called back propagation, mm. so negative descent. That's what lies behind all of this technology that we're discussing today. And then we have people like Jan LeCun, Dennis Hassabis. Now, what's interesting about all these people is they actually looked at the neural structure of the brain and took a sort of metaphorical, uh, you know, inspiration from that. And it went the other way as well. So, you know, learning people have been looking at the way in which AI has been learning, reinforcement learning. There are many species of learning in AI. And so I think that dialectic between almost the neuroscience and the uh, and uh, computer science has been very, very interesting from our point of view, from a learning point of view. But to jump to the Big Bang, because that, that, that the question is really about what's happening with this stuff. You had chat GTP, it's actually technically 3.5. Mm -hmm. That's based on an underlying model, 175 billion parameters. A parameter is not a word, by the way, or a piece of knowledge. A parameter is a weighting between two words, mm -hmm. like dog and puppy. They're quite close, so it's got a, a much higher weighting than, let's say, a dog and rope dog yeah. and lead would be closer than dog and rope that that's what these parameters are and it's an enormous this is the sum total of human knowledge scraped off the internet and used in a sort of socially constructivist manner to spit back on a probability basis it's a bit like a machine gun spitting out words mm. what should the next word be there's no sampling <laughs> it's not like google search it's not uh, uh, there's no such thing as a truth engine but it's certainly not a retrieval sampling type a piece of technology here. Mm. So that happens November the 30th. And then a, within a couple of months, you get chat GPT-4. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the, 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 neither of these are connected to the internet. So all that sort of ethical thing about, oh, it's going to escape onto the internet and kill yeah. us all while we sleep in our beds is not going to be, not going to be true. What happened in the leap between three and four? And this is really important mm -hmm. because every day I see clickbait on Twitter for people who say, oh, look at what's happened with ChatGTB, and they're using three. Yeah. <laughs> and this is a bit like using Wikipedia, but using the version you saw in 2004. Mm. <laughs> because the advance between four and three on the ChatGPT software is enormous in terms of accuracy mm. and guardrailing and ethical care and so on. It's that, and this is all benchmark. Yeah. You've got a really doubling of magnitude and uh, efficacy in terms of accuracy. Mm. I mean, by and large, it, it gives you the right thing. That, that, that's the bottom line here. S certainly in case of L&D, you know, people are pushing the limits of this thing way out there and asking it weird questions. And of course, it does weird stuff. Mm. 
Uh, but that's also true of Google. Everybody uses Google. You know, if I go into Google and start asking it weird stuff, weird sexual stuff and so on, you get some really weird porno type stuff that would come back to you. <laughs> but that doesn't characterize Google because no. people are using it sensibly. So chat GTP4, but that's not the only thing. The interesting thing about the difference between three and four, and we must get out of I've, I've seen some people coming on talking about this on L and D, and they haven't they haven't actually looked at four. Yeah. Because it costs twenty dollars a month, as if that's a budget in L, uh, you know, a barrier to budget in L and D. It's a you know, it's a price of what one round of drinks in a pub or something. You mm. know, three people. I think I think the important thing is to remember that four also has uh, an API, which means you can sort of use it and get it linked into other systems. And of course, that's what's happened in Teams, in Google, and other contexts. This generative AI stuff has been marbled like fat into the meat of these tools that you're using anyway. So you might not think you're using this stuff, but you probably are. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then also the plugins, of course. And then we have some amazing things happening with Khan Academy and Duolingo, where it's absolutely massively accelerating the learning process by providing brilliant pedagogy, or what I call ped-igogy, AI-gogy, into the, those products. Mm. And so... and. I think people are forgetting also that there are other tools here as well. It's not just OpenAI's tools. You've got Bing AI, you've got Google's Bard. Mm -hmm. So I've been playing around with that. And people, people are a bit critical of that. I find it really superb. You know, yeah. I, I'm not at all critical of it. I think these things, given they've only been around for a month or two, yeah. like lighten up, folks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is one of the reasons that uh, that I wanted to speak to you, Donald. I mean, a lot of people have contacted me and said, "Am I going to do one of these?" And uh, and just uh, you know, to uh, to to flip the curtain uh, uh, open uh, uh, just a little bit. Uh, you you and I spoke for the first time on Tuesday. We're recording this on Thursday, and this will be the next episode that goes out that will jump in front of uh, of, uh, of many more that uh, that I've been recording. And one of the reasons is is because the advancement seems to be uh, so significant so quickly. I think that there is uh, um, this this is this is moving quickly. But before we jump into and explore this for L and D uh, and 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 um, different ways this could be used, I want yeah. to explore a little bit more about why this is such a big deal. Now, you mentioned twenty years ago, um, search engines changed the game. Um, I went on the internet in nineteen ninety eight for the first time when I was at college, and it was another couple of years before I tried again because for me it was such a pain. You know, you heard all this good stuff, and I went on it, and it was like, what on earth is this? Because you had to know exactly where to go or you need you needed to yeah. navigate it in ways that search engines made that so much easier so for me like experiencing uh, uh chat gpt this was a game changer this was the biggest um uh, advancement that i'd seen uh on uh, on online access for for all of that time but but it was bill gates in an article that he'd written uh, uh mistake me uh, correct me if i'm wrong called the age of ai in which he described this as the biggest thing to happen to computing since 1980 and the foundations of what we know as operating systems so i mean that's a huge deal like yeah. so 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 this isn't this isn't just one of those things that we see in L&D every now and again, like AR and VR you know, comes in and goes, oh, my God, this is going to change everything. And then everything goes quiet for a while, you know, or, or you know, or, or gaming and all of this stuff that kind of just hits L&D and doesn't make a big impact. And so so a lot of L&D people would be looking and thinking, is this another one of them? Because we've had countless versions of that over the last 20, 25 years. But this is a bigger deal, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the bit, Bill Gates' article, the, the one that called The Age of AI, was really interesting. So mm. I remember Bill left Microsoft as CEO in 
year 2000 that he spent most of his time actually, interestingly, funding learning projects. And I, I was involved in the big $2 million project in Austin, Texas, with AI adaptive learning. And uh, he says something interesting in this article, apart from his faux pas, because I think the second paragraph, he mentions a AI being sensitive to people's learning styles. That's so right. Bill, <laughs> just remember that these people don't know don't know as much about learning as the average L&D person. So mm -hmm. let's keep keep some sense of proportion about what Bill knows about learning or doesn't. But what was interesting about the article, and I think this is where he's right, is when you look at the net benefit of this technology, generative AI, that's the mm. general term for it, then he thinks that education or learning in general is its massive beneficiary. And I think he's right. Mm. And I've been saying this for years at keynotes, at conferences, wrote a book on it and so on and so forth. Uh, so... I th uh, so you might you might ask yourself why does he make that claim? It doesn't go into a hell of a lot of detail, but it's also true of OpenAI. Remember, they they have a massive project with Pan Academy, a learning product. Mm -hmm. They have a massive project with Duolingo, a learning product. Mm -hmm. Many of these people see the real net benefit as not only increasing pr productivity at work. Who doesn't use this thing if you're in a sort of knowledge job? But more importantly, in the education and learning and workplace learning front, that's a really important thing. Now. He actually makes a claim, which is quite an interesting and subtle claim, which is what has happened here, and I agree with him, is this change, as I, I say, between our relationship between knowledge and learning and us as an individual. What people, what blew people's socks off with ChatGTP was the simplicity of the interface, I think. I just type something in, and it comes back. And you had this sense of, wow, that's amazing. I also, I tweeted something this morning because I think it's true. I've been using it for a long time now, but I have felt the sense of release, you know, of a letting go with this technology because it's so simple, like the Google interface, that little, inter you know, I don't know what all these UX experts are going to be doing with the lights <laughs> in the future <laughs> because I don't want all that noise and the little rocket ships and God knows what else they're going to put on this stuff. Mm. Uh, I think when I say that sense of release, that sense of release away from being lectured to that mm. you get in courses, even you're learning, you know, the old text graphic multiple choice questions, A, B, or C, wrong, it should be D. <laughs> All of the above, really? I don't know, I don't care. <laughs> and the more I've come to use it, the more I've seen it as this sort of universal assistant, you know, that's just there. Like we're speaking now, David, you know, I think it's a really interesting analogy with podcasts here. The reason that podcasts have become so successful, I mean globally successful, mm. is the same phenomenon. I think people have just got that sense of, oh, God, thank God, people are speaking to each other like human beings again. You know, and they're not talking at me like a talking head, you know, using synthesa or something, you know, and lecturing me. You will know the Data Protection Act, you know. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think it, they're doing what we're doing, and that's like two adults having a conversation, enjoying ourselves, being relaxed about it, but trying to take a deep dive into a topic. Mm. Now, that that's the first thing. I think the second thing is just the sheer breadth and power of it. It's uh, uh, of it, uh, you know, it just comes back at you with anything. Yeah. So it wasn't just this is a this is a relationship with knowledge. It's not just retrieving content mm. back. It's not that at all. What it is is the mediation is just this simple chat type interface. Mm. But what it's doing there is something extraordinary because it's actually making it's coming back with a uniquely created answer every time you ask something on a fiendishly simple interface okay but we are the sort of co-creators we're in a dialogue with this thing 
and you really do anthropomorphize it. You really do feel as though somebody's coming back. What, 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 what's, what's it going to give me now? Oh, wow. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's like speaking to somebody and it types on the page a little bit slowly. It's got a little bit of latency. Nevertheless, this is the infant, you know, or the, almost the embryo of this thing. It's going to give it a lot better all the time. So it's back to a more normalized, brain-friendly form of learning because it involves dialogue and of course this brain in here evolved to speak as we're we're in a dialogue now and it, that's what this is about so i think bill gates was right in putting his finger on that feature of it that makes it revolutionary he compared it to the original gui interface you know those little file folders type stuff that came up actually by a guy called engelbart in the what's called the you know the, the the greatest demo of all time, and that, that was a long time ago. But it changed our lives. Computers, we have one. We all have one. We all have a smartphone, but we still have that interface. Suddenly, the interface has changed. You may actually not even need a computer. You may just, when it gets the voice, just speak, and it will happen, yeah. <laughs> or speak and get an answer. And that's what's changed here. I think people see it uh, in learning very specifically. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I think that's one of those powerful elements that will lead me nicely on to the next part about how we think it might affect L&D is in describing it as an assistant. I mean, for this uh, here, I asked ChatGPT to give me a first pass at the questions to ask you. I also asked it to write your bio uh, and I also asked it to write the uh, the summary for this episode. Uh, And of course, as an assistant, it did a really good job. So my job was simply editor and also to uh, to add the context and the expertise. And, uh, you know, that when that gets into the ethics of this as well, uh, there's there's a different there's a there's a different role. But I, I what I love about this is the assistant element, which I think becomes a bit foggy in L&D because uh, L&D is of, uh, often a um, uh, an intermediary um, yeah. and uh, chat GPT uh, almost uh, is, an, is an intermediary itself. So, so you've almost got these couple of layers, um, but they have different roles. Chat GPT as an intermediary for somebody who's doing work can give them specific uh, guidance and support. L&D using chat GPT as an intermediary for the intermediary can often uh, create uh, or, or seek for uh, aggregated uh, needs and then looks for standardized <laughs> solutions, almost um, cobbling uh, uh, a lot of yeah. the time, the power of chat GPT. So, so what's my, my next question? Um, uh, you know, there's, there's two parts. I want to talk about the risks secondly, but let's, let's go optimistic first of all and some of the practicalities. How do you see uh, chat GPT, generative AI, disrupting and or helping L&D leaders and teams today and in the near future? Okay. Well, the first thing is that uh, that generative AI will be in all the tools you're going to use anyway. So you have no choice there. It will be, you know, it will be in Teams. It will be in a Google environment. If you're using Google, it will be in SAP. It will be everywhere. So in that sense, it's going to be a productivity tool that's just sitting there. I mean, I'll give you a practical example. I'm giving all these talks at conferences. And the amount of time you spend, oh, can you send me your bio? You know, you just give an example there, David. Why should I send your bio? Type Donald, who is Donald Clark in learning, you know, and you'll get a really nice crisp one at any length you want, written in the style you want for your conference. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I'm also, you know, the, I was thinking about this, I'm giving all these talks all over the world and, uh, you know, in this coming year. And then, the, you know, that rather cumbersome, I give a talk and then there's a microphones in there and a Q&A thing afterwards, you know, or round table thing. And what, what I've been doing is putting all my data, all the 15 years of blogs and books and all sorts of things into one data set and then using uh, ChatGPT, 
to actually, you can ask me any question, basically, yeah. <laughs> and it will come up with an answer, which I've said somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> but but because even I, so I have had this weird experience. I write a lot, you know, been blogging for a long time. I've typed something in and come up, I'm reading it. It goes, shit, I recognize. And it was me that wrote it. because mm-hmm. <laughs> And, you know, you've accessed my own stuff sometimes, not being aware of it, because I've forgotten what I've written. So, and that's true, you know, this keep saying this about learning, you know, working memory and long-term memory are both fallible, massively fallible, mm. but the generative AI draws upon a body of knowledge that is sort of infallible. It's got some fallibility problems on provenance when it delivers it to you, but this really captures everything that's out there. And so it's like a mirror, really, a deep mirror, in which we don't look at, but dive into. <laughs> it's a cultural mirror in yeah. many ways. So coming back to L&D though, so marbled into the meat, number one, it's going to be in all the tools a productivity tool for just people like anywhere else in the business. I mean, I was speaking to Chartered Institute of Marketing and writing some stuff for them, you know, and the marketing people have gone like gone crazy on this because what took days on content creation or email and planning and optimization is just taking minutes, yeah. you know, the cost of it's coming up down to almost zero, revolutionizing the marketing area. Now it could very well do that in learning. I don't think it will because, there's a lot of inbuilt inertia in L&D and HR. You know, very conservative in many ways. So Marble did the meet with tools. The second one is use it yourself to increase productivity. I think when it comes to learning, there's a, a long-term thing here, which you touched upon, which is the dangerous idea <laughs> that on the horizon here, we have this sort of, I, I wrote a big piece on this, a sort of universal trainer or universal teacher. I prefer not to call it trainer or teacher because that goes back to that old lecture at me type, yeah. you, give me a course. I don't mean that. I mean something that will be there all the time and I just ask it something and it gives me pretty much what I need, mm. which is the whole learning in the workflow has just been absolutely magnified here. You can learn anything at any time, 24-7. You know, uh, that this universal trainer, universal teacher idea, I think has a lot of potency here. Mm. Uh, to get us out of the rut of delivering these overlong and over-engineered courses, that supply model. You know, I know it's good for you, and I'm going to give you several hours telling you why it's good for you, and you'll listen, and you'll do a test again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it's not life. <laughs> not, not, it's no way to treat adults in many ways. Now, so I think, let's break that down, however, on the learning front. I think there's a big learning engagement. I mean, hundreds of millions of people are using it, and people going... Do you think we could engage the learner with this? Thing? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think you've got hundreds of millions of people clamoring for your latest, uh, you know, a uh, you know, e-learning course on compliance. Or whatever. Wow. Now, the learning engagement. I, I had a lovely example. I was up at, in a further education college, the biggest in Scotland, in Glasgow, and real, really lovely people. All the teachers have absolutely embraced this thing. They're using it. All the students are using it, but they're very open about it, so you don't get on any of that, you know hunter and hunted is are they plagiarizing completely toxic environment that you get in higher education the great thing about that uh, that experience was a guy who came from my hometown in scotland and he's dealing with neats the, the kids who are not in employment and some of these kids had already been in uh, ngl or young offenders institutions and they were only 16 and he, and engage yeah i know these kids it's, it's the background i came from I, it's hard engaging with them because they're a bit hacked off, you know. <laughs> they, you know, there is that general feeling that you know, like, like they got dumped out of school. You know, nobody cared what they were going to do for a career because they weren't going to uni, which is because we have a graduate profession in teaching. That by and large, everything's funneled towards that middle class parents, kids going to university. But these kids were all sitting with their hoodies up, 
and they're tough, a tough audience. Mm. And he said, he showed them chat GTP. And one of them, you know, turned around and joked, said, oh, could it help me with my Tinder profile? Yes, sir. Yeah. <laughs> he still says, sir, you're <laughs> only 16. And so he took his Tinder profile, put it in chat, a chat GTP, and they, they came back to the class, which was two days later. He said, you'll never guess what's happened, sir. 90 <laughs> hits one day. <laughs> and, and I thought it was such a nice story, you know, about mm. people who just refuse to engage with learning or adults at all being massively excited by something as simple as a couple of paragraphs of text being written in reasonable and friendly prose. Mm. It's an interesting incident in that kid's life, you know, because then he had the whole lot involved. Men are doing all sorts of interesting things using the tool. Sorry, I've laboured that later. That <laughs> a little bit. But it was a nice example. And then there's learner support. Now, I talk a lot, of, I've talked about this for years, you know, the idea that when you, that you need support in learning, whether it's a formal learning experience. So there's a famous Georgia chatbot that they put in, that was years ago, 2018-19, and that won a teaching award. You know, it was so mm. consistent, so good. Let's just do this, you know, and learn of support. Or whether you've got a help desk even in the L&D, I was speaking to somebody about that yesterday, Let's just automate that stuff. Mm. But there is also the performance, of this pendulum swing towards performance support, David, that I think we talked about last time. On yeah. The I think you now have a chance of really doing this in anger. You know, the idea that we can learn in the flow, work on the job, in context and get yeah. what you need as you're doing stuff. That's definitely with us now because that's what I, that's how I use chat GTP. The number of times I just go up and click on that little symbol now because at that point I need something. Yeah. And it does the job for me. Then there's the content creation side. So if we go across the learning journey, that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. If you do want formal learning, and there is still a case to be made for, hold on a minute, let's sit back. Let's get come out, out of that context of workflow for a minute. And say you, we all collectively in this organisation need to know this. A new product launch, for example, yeah, something, you know, or important change in the legislation and so on. Then I think there, and I'm, I'm involved in a couple of projects on that, and that, that's blowing my mind. You know, the idea that you can literally sit with this tool and type in any course in any language, the translation is mind-blowingly good. Yeah. Uh, and so that that holds great promise, and I think we'll see that soon. I I, I think there's a big maybe another question around upskilling on that one. So mm. content creation is is a big one as well. Mm. I think the big impact will be still some courses, but less of them. More performance yeah. support, thank God, mm -hmm. uh, and of course a more sophisticated shift away from lecturing dialogue. Everything needs to be a course, the supply model to a demand model, because yeah. people are doing it for themselves and using the tool for themselves. Hmm. I can, so I can say, that, yeah, go yeah. on, sorry. Oh, the last thing I would say is it, it might just at last get us out some of those terrible L&D tropes that we've got stuck in this one furrow with this big tractor plowing away against the grain, which yeah. is, you know, there's the big therapeutic thing. Everybody will have a diversity, equality and inclusion course twice a year, whether they want it or not. Hmm. And that accusatory, th you know, like, wow, really? I mean, I got fed up because I was in loads of public bodies. I kept getting sent to these courses, and they were terrible. Yeah. I mean, I mean, mind-numbingly bad. Mm. So I think maybe we'll get out of some of those old tropes, you know, where we take an abstract noun like resilience or something. We, oh, we need a course. Why do we need a course? Who, who asked for yeah. this course in resilience? Did anybody ever in the history of L&D come to you and say, I don't think I'm feeling very resilient? Could we have mm. a course on that? Yeah. That's because the model has 
and it's changed recently into a massively supply model. It's not mm. demand driven. Yeah. I think it's a supply model. I think it really is HR and L&D telling people what they think they need mm. all of a sudden. That really disappoints me because we have a massive skill shortage out there in the real world. Things are falling apart because we're no longer training people in competencies, you know, mm. we're training them in abstract nouns. Yeah. You could be a leader, Nigel, in accounts. <laughs> yeah, really? Nigel's going, me? Why me? <laughs> yes, you yeah, you come along, we'll give you two days and why you will be the Genghis Khan of the organization. <laughs> By people who've never led anything, of course. Uh, you yeah, know, yeah. there's these hokey courses, these little bromides and platitudes and essays. I think I'm hoping that this will just free us from that entanglement mm. with abstractions and, and start to, when I say demand-driven, I mean both learners and the organization, not yeah, just yeah. anything else. And get get us out of the supply-led model. Mm. Well, I, I see one of the, uh, the the huge opportunities building on what you've just said there, um, that, that learning and development can be truly achieved bottom-up. Um, a, a lot of the ills of learning and development is this belief that that we could do so much top down. And we do that for two reasons, as far as I'm concerned, uh, and that I can see. Number one is command and control, <laughs> like good old fashioned command and control, because it seems Indeed. easier to tell people what to do than it is to help them with what they're trying to do uh, and guide them in the in the right ways. And the second one is resource, because it's just too resource heavy or has been to to do too much bottom up. But with the, with the example that you described <laughs> there about uh, uh uh, DE&I, which, which of course often comes, uh, if not uh, wholly comes from a good place, but separating that from everybody's day-to-day -day just makes it uh, too sanitized and too far removed. But just, you know, uh, one example of, uh, of ChatGPT uh, is you can, you can create job descriptions that are inclusive. Like if you've got a particular issue, again, so you don't, you don't try to change people what you do is you you uh, increase the uh, the uh, the automated administration to stop humans from being too human and making these mistakes that you probably can't rattle out of, uh, of people. But this is where I see some of the huge opportunities here, because it's one thing to talk about L&D, but this technology is going to uh, the, the, the potential to affect uh, work and organizations will almost by osmosis then uh, affect learning and development because what i'm really excited about is that um in challenging this uh this uh this supply-led uh model that, uh, that you described here is if uh if we're using generative ai to pull data from inside our organization to recognize yeah. where there is a true critical point of failure that is affecting a certain cohort, you know, I, I, there, there is a there is a particular consequence which is creating the 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 uh, the critical point of failure. You can then isolate the uh, the, the the people responsible for that. Say, for example, uh, if you if you're losing top talent uh, within a particular area. The you know it's not going to be long before we are uh, we're seeking the response to that, and it could be off the top of my head here newly pro newly promoted managers within a team uh, who uh, perhaps aren't uh, 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 providing the opportunities for talented people to grow here because they're not particularly capable themselves. Now I know that there's a narrative uh, as well as the data, but simply uh, seeking to to isolate and then recognise the data is going to be a question or a prompt away. Uh, so, so learning and development, I feel one of the biggest problems that we have is that we buy uh, comprehensive, in inverted commas, solutions, whether that be technology programs or curricula, to address 
ill-defined, if not undefined problems along the way, and nothing changes because we didn't know what we should be working on because we didn't know what was actually broken. So bottom-up L&D in the same way as, uh, as any kind of bottom-up diagnosis from within the organization can really add power and and, and almost like, a, and I, do, I hate to use that such a, a pithy term, democratize the learning uh, opportunities here because everyone can see the problem and then maybe we can have we can have conversations about solving real problems rather than L&D being invited in to sing a song and do a dance so everybody feels yeah. better uh, or, or or is compliant in some way. I mean, in what ways do you see this in, uh, yeah. in, in similar ways affecting and, and helping organisations and work in general? Well, that was a great example you gave there. I was listening carefully there because I think you hit all the right notes throughout that. The, on the DEI example, it's no doubt that that's a supply-driven model, you know, and it's imposed upon people. And many people, the rolling of the eyes is the sort of reaction to it because it's all got too much. But the the interest there's another angle to this, which is not only is it supply top-down model as well described by you there, David. Actually, the evidence from you know we have like a lot of evidence now from and uh, there were three articles last year, you know, in the, in the New York Times and Harvard Business Review uh, and the Washington Post saying. Uh, these this came out of Yale. People looking at the evidence on big meta studies saying that all of this uh, DEI stuff doesn't work. I mean, why are you spending? I think it was four billion in the US last year alone. Why are you spending all this money? Because all the evidence, these massive longitudinal studies from Dobbins, Caliph, Faulkner, there are a whole number of them, and I've written about this for years. Saying, listen, why doesn't L and D actually look at the evidence here? Why are you so scared to evaluate and change tack if something goes wrong? Because the truth is, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. What does work, what was really interesting is, okay, when you ask the question of what problem is this a solution, what does work? Actually, what you described. Actually, what works are tiny, tiny uh, changes in process around recruitment, for example. You don't have the names, you have blind gender recruitment, so on and so forth. That's what AI does, <laughs> you know? It, 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 it tries to objectify it. So, but LND has a funny... Ha a strange habit of ignoring evaluative evidence <laughs> <laughs> because I think it's a bit scared of finding out the truth that what it's doing very often doesn't work. And that's a very clear example. However, being positive, I think one of the interesting things about this episode that we just described that happened in November, but well, over the last few months is what Cotter's, you know, a lot of what I've been doing in my life on L&D is just change management, trying to get people to change direction, shift up, shift to the side, shift forward. In, you know, learning and development. How do we develop the individuals and organizations? And this has done what Cotter, the best-selling reprint still to this day at the Harvard Business Review is his original eight-step change management paper. And it's still as good now when you read it as it was way back then. But what was revolutionary about his change management method, which everybody knew, but L&D never does it. And this is slightly infuriating, is create a sense of urgency. He said, do not write a plan. Do not write a course. Do not leap into this blanket approach to things. The first thing you do is create a sense of urgency, a thirst, if you will, for what's going to happen. Mm. Now, boy, has this created a sense of urgency, the whole world. I was in the train coming back from a meeting about with the DFE, actually, on the uh, Department for Education, about ChatGTP and Generative AI. Great meeting, lovely people. I was sitting in the train coming back to Brighton. The people behind me were talking about ChatGTP and the people on the right-hand side over the yeah. train. I go, this is, this is Zeitgeist, big time. Yeah. And they were talking about it in quite a sophisticated, but they were just ordinary people who had used it and played it around. It's quite, isn't it amazing? Yeah, well, so I think the world has now got its, has created 
well, OpenAI has created a sense of urgency, and that's what we need to build on quickly here, which leads on to things like upskilling and all these topics. But I, I'm hoping in a very positive sense that it will get us out of these old habits, old tropes, and that we take, take learning a wee bit more seriously than delivering a, yet another course. Which leads me on to the it's next question. I don't want to get rid of them entirely. No, no, no. Well, well, I, you know, there, there, there's just too many of them. It's, uh, it's the, it's the go-to um, uh, um, medium for for so many defined and undefined problems. Which, which leads me to the next question, uh, Donald. Do you see a risk to L and D missing the boat or misapplying generative AI because of what we just said that that many are going to look and see faster courses? Oh yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about that. I mean, it's not their fault really because. I think this is just a normal historical. So in the learning technologies side, we focus on that for a minute. You can talk in a wider one, but that one, you know, we're we're about to hit the learning technologies conference in in May, early May. That's not far off, is it? A few weeks, uh, and uh, I'll be speaking there about the generative AI on uh, the, the afternoon of the first day in the main hall thing. But the interesting thing, if you walk out into the exhibition floor. There isn't a company in that room who hasn't had a big huddle and got together and said, what we're going to do about this? Because mm -hmm. yeah, <laughs> yeah. this is a massive opportunity and threat. So the threat is all those content production companies charging £20,000 per hour for bespoke content. You go, really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, your days are numbered because you can do so much of that much quicker. Yeah. Uh, and uh, actually, I think you're looking at tools now. You know, rather than sitting, say, I need... So this is the dynamic, you know, Learning development say you need a course on X. Uh, it's how long will it take? Oh, three months. Turns out to be six. Mm -hmm. How much is it going to cost? Twenty thousand dollars an hour. Thousand pounds an hour. Really? Oh, okay. Budget blown. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now we have a model that said, actually, what do people really need here? Yeah. <laughs> what does the data say? Ah, right. Okay, let's give them this today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> today. Yep. This afternoon. Now, actually, I'd been doing that using Wildfire. We'd doing courses, you're literally returning on the same day using AI to build e-learning content, which was so different from what people expected because it didn't have lots of cartoons, yep. <laughs> speech bubbles, and people you know, people go, is this it? I said, yeah, that's, that's actually real learning right. where you have to know things, type things in, do stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I think we'll, I think it'll be an interesting year here because I suspect that a lot of companies will be unable to make the change because they've embedded their entire future and technology the LMS world for example goes really goes back to the technology that emerged in the big Cambrian explosion and I was there when it happened mm. in the in the early 2000s and that was driven by some terrible behavior you know big long checklist can it do all of this yeah and can it do this so people just built big bits of enterprise software that did a lot of things people never use mm -hmm. and it was really a big repository and database for courses some of that's changed, to be honest. Some really good. I think the LMS. I think an LMS is a reasonable thing to have in a big, a big organization. Mm. So it's going to be a sort of Darwinian. I think it's going to be a sort of extinction event to a degree. I don't want yeah. to exaggerate that, but I think that will happen to a degree. To what degree depends on what will be delivered on the next year. But a year is nothing, you know. Yeah. I think really over a five-year horizon, this is the big paradigm shift here, towards away from monologue lecture to you courses given at you with pretending you've got agency by asking a few multiple choice questions every now and again mm -hmm. towards dialogue yeah and complexity you know really personalized and i was it's driven by me the learner god i'm stuck here can you give me some help yeah sure okay great let's move on can academy watch that video no learning professional should actually do anything until they stop 
for 10 minutes and watch the Khan Academy video because it gives you an inkling of where this is going to go. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. So, yeah. So I'll, I'll, put, I'll put the link to that in the uh, uh, in the show notes there. What it sounds like, uh, uh, Donald, is uh, is similar to um, um, uh, a moment that that the music industry had in the early two thousands when there was a lot of money to be made in physical um, uh, music, um, whether it be CDs or. Uh, I can't yeah. remember. For, for cassettes, cassettes were probably uh, out by those. Probably, probably CDs. But but the big players um, in um, in publishing and retail still still wanted to make that money. Still were trying to protect that, and that's why HMV and the like were not um, the the big beneficiaries of um, uh, music online. Whether it be um, what iTunes first um, uh, capitalized on, and then uh, streaming services uh, then did because of that protectionism. And I wonder whether, because there is still so much money to be made uh, at the moment from creating content, whether we'll see something similar, that protectionism before we see the market completely disrupted. I think the music thing is a really interesting analogy because very quickly, you know, I'm an old guy now, but I lived in the era of vinyl records. You had to go out yep. and buy them physically, play them in a record player. It then moved into little cassettes that you plugged into a cassette player. It then the moved onto CDs, and now we don't have any of that. It's all in landfill mm -hmm. because it's all a sort of SaaS, Spotify, get music through any device on my smartphone type thing. But actually, this is going further than that. So I remember way back in the, at the Elliot Maisie conference seeing the young kid. He was only, he was only 19 at the time, incredibly nervous, talking uh, at that time uh, about the early Napster. He was the guy who wrote Napster. So a young kid goes into his bedroom, two months later, changes the entire history of the music industry. Yeah. And of course, he got attacked by Metallica and all these sort of people. And now it's just normal. And I remember at the time, I actually gave a talk and people were sort of laughing. You know, I say, you, you, you do understand what's going on here with this file sharing thing. This is massive for us. Mm. And of course, you know, they were mostly, it was a very odd experience. And Elliot didn't get it either, to be honest. But actually it's happened. But it's gone further than that. Because music at the moment is still a packaged song, which you then go and retrieve a la Google type style, mm. but it's all delivered just in a sort of SaaS type fashion. Mm. This is actually different because it's not, it's, it's, it's like you get a new song every time you ask for one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uniquely, it's not sampling like rap. It doesn't sample anything. This is one of the big mistakes people think of imagine going in and pulling stuff out of a database in some way. It's not. It's creating stuff in real time on the fly on a probability basis, yeah. it, trying to work out what question you asked it. Mm. And so it's almost like getting a fresh piece of music every time you listen to music, but you've asked for it. Yeah. <laughs> like, can I have a, oh, yeah, like it's, it's eight o'clock in the morning. Could I have just a little bit of mood music while I make my coffee and wake up? And it'll give yeah. you that. You know? Can I have a new team? That, that's on. the difference here. <laughs> and this is, this is sort of, it's what I mean by this relationship with knowledge thing that's changed. That's the mm. fundamental shit. And people haven't got their head around that because actually what people are doing with ChatGTP is asking it a question and it comes up with an answer and that's it. So, that, yeah. no, 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 no. That's not really it. Actually, once you use it a bit, you find that you ask another question and then another, then another. And suddenly you're vectoring through, you're vectoring forward because you're learning as you go, but you're, it's your personal agency and curiosity that's driving the thing. And of course, in Khan Academy, it's different because if you're teaching young kids, you don't want them just to, as we always do, zoom off in uh, you know, YouTube and suddenly five hours later, you're, you're there in some obscure corner. Mm. What you want to do is still have guided instruction in a sense, but build that into the tool. So one of the really heartening things about the first launch of Chat 
GPT-4 was the Khan Academy experiment. Now, Khan Academy, it's absolutely amazing what they've done with it at both a primary elementary school, what they call in America, middle school, secondary school, and college level. You could basically have... A, you know, a, te a learning experience on any topic you want to mm. quite a high level. It then goes on to critical thinking about the Declaration of Independence, starts talking about John Locke and that the phrase, you know, uh, the famous phrase on happiness actually was lifted out of Locke's uh, original essay and so on. And like, I have a degree in philosophy, but I'm going, wow, this is, this is mind-blowingly good. Mm. And so this idea that it's some sort of primitive, clunky search retrieval thing is blown completely out the water. It's extremely sophisticated. Yeah. And uh, also voice is interesting. I think when voice comes along, that will change the whole dynamic as well. I think we've been drowning in a sea of text in learning and education. Most e-learning is reading endless loads of text that's all, yeah. always overwritten, uh, you know, with, with some quite often hokey stock image type graphics. And I, I think I, I'm hope because, so we in some of the projects I've been involved in, the great thing about prompting is you can prompt it to be, can you make this a maximum number of words? Can you give me this in three bullet points? You can ask it that and it will do it. Yeah. <laughs> its power as a designer of learning experiences is mind-blowing. Yeah. Keep using that phrase, mind-blowing. Honestly, I, I, <laughs> even when I say it, I'm feeling as though I'm, I'm being cliched. But honestly, honestly, I feel it is when I yeah. use it. It's almost like you've got to get past the novelty of it and, uh, and you know, asking it silly things. Because as you said, you ask it silly things, you get silly things back. But it's when you're using it as an assistant when you really could do with the help uh, or you, 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 don't, you don't have time for, for the admin because so much of what, what it can pick up is admin. It's not, it's not the best stuff that humans could be doing. But it gets me to the next point I, I want to I get to, Donald, because uh, it's um, the, the closer we can get to L&D's priorities, I feel that we can get to the potential uh, yeah. of, uh, of it. So I wonder what it means for things like, uh, you know, there's a lot about upskilling and reskilling in L&D. Uh, yeah. And, uh, and uh, there's a lot of noise from from vendors. But but when we get when we actually get down to it, upskilling and reskilling is really important because uh, if people aren't staying in roles uh, for uh, for too long, you need to get them up to speed and performing. And then, of course, with 80 percent of the workforce of 2030 already in the workforce today, there's a there's a huge chance there's going to be reskilling, but it's not for the benefits of plugging uh, new know-how into people to tick a box. They need to be able to do jobs. This is to, to fuel internal mobility. This is to plug um, uh, gaps in your organization where it's either too expensive or it's nigh on impossible to hire from the outside. So, so whereas before you might have a learning and skills engine that drives people towards content, <laughs> and of course the old paradigm, Donald, which we know wasn't a real paradigm at all, that that uh, uh, completion equals competence, um, which was always nonsense. This can lead us closer to the the what is actually required both from a diagnostic from uh, guidance and support right the way through to people actually doing different stuff so i wonder i wonder how you see this playing out or or helping lnd in those in those regards yeah so there's the personal level and the organizational level there's no doubt that why don't we just let get, uh, get people just well, they will use this thing anyway. It's going to be on their smartphone and GPT-3 is free. It's only $20 to get four, which is like twice as good. So, you know, you. I think I think we might do well to stay out of the way in that one and let the marketing people just use this tool to, to improve themselves and increase productivity. Step aside, guys, you know, because this is not an area where you want a course on chat GDP by people who barely know what it is. That's right. Designing it. 
I, on the other hand, I think if I were in, if I were running a big L and D department at the moment, I would certainly, absolutely, having everybody under my wing looking at the technology. For and so let's break that down. What do you need to know about it? First of all, you need to really understand this. Why culturally, it's creating a sense of urgency, and that's a given now. You don't have to say, "Is this a fad?" No, it's not a fad. Uh, hundreds of millions of people are using it. It's embedded in teams. Blah blah blah. It, there's no reversing out of this now. The but, but you really have to understand a wee bit more about how the technology works if you're going to talk intelligently about it. And far too many are, people are jumping on Twitter. I actually have found that quite a lot of learning people are using ChatGTP3. As I say, why are you doing that? That's like referring to Wikipedia in 2003. Why are you not using ChatGTP4? Loads of that. Oh, look, it made a mistake. Uh, hold on. That's an ancient version of the software. Ancient now means three months ago. <laughs> so... So use the right tools. Secondly, get to grips with it and just play with it because I don't think it needs much more than an interrogative, you know, chat with it. Don't just ask it a question and wait. Go on, try and refine something. Have a task, have a go. Have a problem to solve and see how it helps you. Yeah. That's the first thing. Understand how it works. The second thing is to understand the media production side of things because a lot of L&D now is producing videos or whatever, you know, text, mostly text and graphics, actually. Hardly ever podcasts, which always blows my mind, the most popular medium on the planet, and L&D completely and utterly ignore it, <laughs> even though I think literally millions, if not billions of people actually use it to learn. Yeah. But it's not going to come in L&D. Why is that? <laughs> <laughs> the, the, re the reason is, Donald, just to, to, to do that is because it doesn't solve a problem that L&D have diagnosed, because, again, they're not solving real problems. They're solving the, the assumed problems. But, but you know, but, but yeah. people not knowing... Uh, what the organization is working on right now. Imagine, just imagine, uh, now I know this is a, a slight digression. Imagine you've got some leaders in your organization having a, a, a conversation about what is going on for them. You know, it's almost like, you know, we, we've, yeah. we, we've talked before about what, what's the value in this? Why, why do people love it? Sometimes it's like having two people who really know their shit talking about something that you perhaps wouldn't be privy to otherwise. And imagine that's going on in your organization. So it's not for instruction, it's for insight. But imagine that that insight is shared across your organization. Just imagine the decisions that could be made when people are actually in the know. Uh, you know, they've just, there's one example. But of course, that doesn't solve a problem that learning and development are looking to fill because... They're looking. It's a you know it's a it's a it's a content or curricular problem rather yeah. they're looking for rather than necessarily uh, an insight productivity or uh, or performance and results issue. But maybe that's an aside. <laughs> yeah, I think people can look at problems through a different lens here because I think there's a mindset uh, change management issue within L and D as well. Yeah. So I think you want to get away from media generation. You know, just pumping out videos and mm. text and graphic stuff all the time. And, and also take a more serious view of the pedagogy of this stuff, why it works, why dialogue matters. Uh, you know, that, that that traditional stuff, you could spend all day talking about that. <laughs> Another podcast. Yeah, and also to understand that there's no longer a simple page-turning text graphic type thing. This is it's dealing with the complexity of learning and mm -hmm. the complexity of the subjects you have to get into your head to develop in an organization. It's dialogue, it's not monologue. Yeah. And... Uh, it's also, you know, open input. You're typing stuff in here. You're not just, yeah. is it A, B, C, or D, or all of the above, or none of the above? You know, it's not that. It's yeah. changing mindset towards the person actually, like, what? I'm having a problem here. Like, how do I solve, how do I solve this problem? All oh, right. Well, exactly. On that, you give me three things there. But that second one, I don't really know what that's the type. That's real learning. Yeah. Comple it deals with the complexity of cognition in a way that the other methods we've been using in the past, especially in the classroom. And don't, if people come back to me and say, let's go back to the classroom then, 
get a grip. <laughs> you know, really, are we really going to sit around those little round tables again with felt tip pens and flip charts and do and go through that theater of collaborative? What a waste of time all that was in the first place. Yeah. Well, the thing is, you can't you can't transform an organization twelve people at a time. I mean, yeah. that, at, at, at a very basic level. Yeah. So the. The universal trainer idea, which I'd plant in people's idea, the idea that within your organization, you would have two things, just general stuff, that business as usual, but also very specific stuff to your organization that's based on the mother load of you know, data you already have. And that data is a whole load of documents, mm. a whole load of compliance stuff, of course. It's a whole load of videos and it's a whole load of PowerPoints normally. But imagine that this stuff can already start to semantically inter interrogate that and produce stuff that's more useful in a dialogue fashion at the front end. I think you mentioned earlier here, data, people are going to have to get a wee bit more savvy in data. And I don't mean those, I've seen some terrible presentations at conferences recently, which is basically, this is a pie chart, this is a histogram, and here's a dashboard. Really? Are we really going back to like the second year of a GCSE course for 12-year-olds and learning analytics? Or are we going to take that issue seriously and get some adults in the room who understand what XAPI are, or and not necessarily even use it, but understand that we really have to gather more than completion data and SCORM. SCORM, that thing that sort of grabbed people around the throat and has been associating us on data for 20 years. I think we need to move beyond that and start looking at the great thing about XAPI is that triplet. You know, Donald did X. Donald uh, read this book and actually summarized it. These are learning experiences. That's interesting to know. You went to the effort of doing all that and you summarized it. Oh, great. And he distributed it to other people. He did a podcast. Blah, blah, blah. That's the sort of thing you need to know in terms of data. Yeah. I think another one that people need to be brought up to speed on a little bit, I did this in my book, Learning Experience Design, is understand the performance support side of things here. Yeah. You know, they really have to get to grips with that concept, learning and the flow of work and all that sort of stuff, because that's going to happen. It already is happening. Mm. And then there's a really interesting one, which in L&D, which is, I've called it, because L&D has been delivery of courses, a sort of crude form of communications, which is mostly a telling, an act of telling, broadcast, you yeah. will do this. I think now it's almost about communicating expectations. Like we've got this AI stuff, blah, blah, blah. And don't worry, it might make a mistake now. Who hasn't seen a mistake in a stand-up training course? Totally. I mean, I used to do this for a living. I'd get stuff from a subject matter expert and I'd go through it and go, I'm not even a subject matter expert and I know that's wrong. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I, in fact, I can't think of a single course I've ever made where the original material is in good enough shape or even, to be honest, factually correct enough to be presented to a learner. Yeah. So I think we have to get out this idea that we lived in this sort of truth engine world where L&D was delivering the truth to yeah. people. Actually, that was never the case. But I think we're changing the attitudes now. Say, oh, yeah, we've got these tools now. It's going to help you. And, and just manage their expectations a little bit. Mm. It's almost as if you're changing across the change man management from lecturing and telling people. Mm. So these are all shifts, I think, that if I were a senior sort of person in a L&D department, I would, take, I would be taking my team down this road carefully, yeah. but exposing them to it. And uh, actually, my experience is very, really, really interesting. Over the last month or two, I've been in some really big organizations, big government departments, and the people have been amazingly, I've been really surprised because I haven't had all that negativity that you get with tech quite often, you know, oh, but it doesn't do this, you know, the and, but, and, but. It's all yes, and, get, yeah. tell me more. It's, and so I've had two sessions this week alone, one in big government department, 65,000 people, another one in the DFE, I'd say, because they said I could. And the people were fantastic, asking all the right questions. They had already played with the tool. 
uh, were really impressed. But what they wanted to do was it created that sense of urgency. They were on stage two. How can we use this now? Yeah, and that's what every L and D department should be thinking about at the moment. Yeah, rather rather than um, uh, being reluctant to to even give it a go and then being um, uh, cynical about uh, its potential application. But I know that uh, that Donald, you worked in partnership with uh, ChatGPT quite recently uh, on uh, recognizing the new skills required in uh, in L and D uh, to make the most of generative AI. So what what would you say were were the the biggest shifts or the uh, the the biggest things that L and D need to to get to grips with themselves in order to make the most of this. Well, I think there's a top end strategic piece because it will affect. Like if you have an internal, so the strategy thing is really important because I did a really interesting little uh, podcast with Michelle Slayer Parry recently, and she did a little video in it, and she said, "What are the three pe- three things you would tell L and D what to do?" and my, my number one was go and read your organization's annual report if it's a private company. Because <laughs> I've run companies, you know, and it, it, it's, so, it's so disappointing when you go, well, why are you delivering this course? There's nothing. I haven't heard anybody in the organization at senior level say they want this. Who, who said they wanted a course on resilience? Mm-hmm. Did somebody on the board really ask for that? Or did you sort of subtly tell them they need it and then wanted to deliver it? So I think... I think there's a strategic piece around the use of AI, of you know, smart software, call it what you will, generative AI, in the L&D department. And I would get on with that right now. What we're going to do, how we're going to position this, how we're going to communicate it with, and at the senior sort of team level. And then it depends because this is not a homogeneous problem. If you have an internal design team, for example, those people will rightly be feeling a little bit nervous about this because what they've been doing in the past is going to change. Mm-hmm. And so you have a very, I would have a very specific upskilling path so that gives them some room to breathe around the technical skills they need to understand what the technology is, how media generation, you know, how you can actually generate images with this thing now and automatically generate audio, transcription, mm-hmm. translation, all those things are being automated literally as we speak. Uh, and and also get give them some training around how how different the pedagogy is here, how it's very good pedagogy. In fact, it's not it's not like the old sort of talking type thing. It's actually giving agency, allowing people to proceed through competencies on at the, taking the right time for them to get time to competence as a personal thing. Highly personalized approach to learning, which is mm-hmm. good. It's dealing with complexity. It's giving them dialogue, not monologue. Mm-hmm. Uh, open input, not multiple choice questions, more complex AI vectoring through things, complex AI-led learning journeys. It's more data-led, in other words, solving real problems in the organization, as you rightly said. Maybe voice is a big thing that's going to come into the back of this and then this communication of expectations. So there's a whole number of things, I think, on that one team alone I would be exploring. You know, and they're not frightening people to death. These are good people. The interesting thing about chat. GPT is if you have domain knowledge, like your learning experience designer, you will be able to prompt very, very well because you know what sort of questions to ask if you're producing, let's say, 10 questions on a topic. You'll know how to prompt it so that it doesn't produce multiple choice questions if you wanted to do that with the longest option. Now, from yeah. it's the obvious answer, or you know, you can actually prompt by building in pedagogy to your prompting. Good that way. But that's one team. Now the I would be looking at your budget overall strategically again and saying, like, what portion of the budget should we shift towards doing things more dynamically and performance support as opposed to course delivery? And so all of these things I would be taking into account, planning for and taking back to the business or whoever the paymaster is 
that's difficult because if you're L&D and your pacemaster's HR, they're probably not going to be particularly agile in this stuff. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I've seen I've seen really agile L&D departments just get on with it themselves, you know, and yeah. I think that's quite nice when you see that. A lot yeah. of good people in that area, you know, the, and, and you might think that big or sluggish organization like government departments, but there's some really brilliant people in there who really want to do this, and they will. Yeah. And I went in, I say I went in at college, and, you, you know, people say, universities are a bit depressing because all they want to talk about is plagiarism and essays, as if essays, as if, you know, I'm, I'm getting tired of, you know, here, you know, that we, you know, we send kids to school at age five and then they pop out the other end at, you know, 20 years later, having done a master's as well for some weird reason. Uh, and and all they've done is write essays <laughs> and, and, and write text and read text. It's just a really weird world. Education has got trapped in this text output because we've abandoned learning by doing and all that good action transfer orientated stuff. So people mm-hmm. are quite unskilled now when they, when they leave the educational system. But I, th- I think we may get out of that that trap that everything should be text and graphics. Yeah. Uh, really? <laughs> That's it. And as you've been mentioning the power. This is going to be in dialogue and it's going to be in real time. Exactly. And it's, and, uh, and I suppose the, you know, the big difference between uh, education and corporate learning is that at the, as a result of interactions with, with whatever tools the company's provided, you should be able to do the thing like, and this is, yeah. and this is, this is, this is hugely uh, important. And this gets me on as we, uh, as we look to, uh, uh, to, to conclude the conversation, Donald, that that L and D teams are going to be looking to the market um, for uh, for some support here, as well as uh, rolling their sleeves yeah. up and uh, and um, and doing this themselves. But there's there is uh, quite rightly a, a reliance on uh, on smart tech vendors uh, to provide the the tools and the guidance on this. So I've got a, a two prong question: uh, What should learning tech vendors be uh, be exploring right now, and um, what should L and D companies be looking to their their tech vendors? Uh, to be providing um, right now. In a funny sort of way, the tech vendors are maybe the last people you want to go to. In this. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they have this, they have this huge, they're, they're trapped in this uh, uh, myth of Sisyphus thing. They've got this huge boulder that they're trying to sell to you and they're pushing it uphill. Mm. And they're suddenly realized, actually, we're pushing the wrong boulder up the wrong hill here. Yeah. And, but they're still going to sell you the boulder because they're still going to say, your problem is X and we've got solution Y. Yeah. And I haven't seen precious little evidence of many of the LMS vendors, for example, particularly that group moving in this direction. Some have, to be fair, mm-hmm. very aggressively. So I would be, I mean, if you want to learn about this, I think the last place I would go to, would, to be honest, would be going around the exhibition hall in May at Learning Technologies, right? mm-hmm. because you're not going to learn much there, because they, they, those people themselves have a vested interest in not doing this. Mm-hmm. Because to be fair, they have to keep made, making money and paying their salaries. Some of them will be good because they're already there. Mm. So there are two or three vendors. I'm, 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 I think it would be unfair to name them right now, but I think there are two or three people who've been doing this for some time. Mm-hmm. I know how to flip it because they're data-orientated in their solutions. They're not so wedded to delivering these big courses. They're more performance support in their thinking, more LXP-ish, more performance support. That's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and But so, so finally, Donald, um, you know, there are going to be a lot of people interested. It's good. This has got to be the biggest thing, not just to hit learning and development, but to hit a lot of us in a long, long time. So what would your advice be specifically to L&D professionals today, regardless of whether they think this is for them or it's not? Well, I think I, I have always 
again, it was something I put in a little video for Michelle here. I said, I, in Ellen, yeah, I, I have always personally, as a learner, found it very useful to connect with people who know about a domain, mm. you know? And uh, uh, if I want to know about moments of need type thing, I know Bob Mosher. I know I can look at his stuff. He tweets. He's on He's on my Facebook, you know? I, I know where to find my personal learning network. Now, when you have a brand new, new kid on the block, which is what this is, I would start to seek out the people who are really writing interesting stuff, dealing with the issues that you're doing. And you are one of these people, David. You know, you we, we spoke two days ago. We're doing this podcast now. That's yeah. what we need to do. We need to move at speed here. And hopefully this podcast might have opened up some doors for people. But it's it's a door-opening exercise because what I've been doing is I've been spending a lot of time writing books during COVID. But to be honest, books are really slow. It takes about six months to get it published after mm -hmm. you finish the book. I just finished one. It's not going to be released till the end of the year. Yeah, it's a madness. And then they said, "Can you update your artificial intelligence book because we're going to release it in February or March next year?" I go, "Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> Do you understand that this might change next week?" Yeah. So I think I've gone. I've gone back to blogging a fair bit because I think this is moving so quickly. So I think you know. To be, I, I think you know. I've taken a bit of deep dive in this because I've been looking at it for years and written a lot about it and a whole book about it. But I think more recently I was looking at the people who are blogging good stuff here on what L&D should do about it, podcasts. You know, I did a really nice podcast also. This is great speaking to you because you're well-known in the industry and you've got a good rep on this stuff. And this is evidenced by the fact you've done it within two days of us talking about it. But And then I did one on John Helmer. If you want a deep dive into mm -hmm. the pedagogy of this generative AI, we did one on social constructivism, yeah. used looking at Piaget, Vygotsky, Bruno, and how this is actually a fits the socially constructive model, if you believe in that stuff. Uh, the zone of proximal development, it all fits quite nicely. In other words, Vygotsky says that we'll learn by referring to a knowledgeable other, it's the phrase mm -hmm. he used, and actually what we do is use language and social capital to teach people. Suddenly all that social capital is in a model and you can, and we have an interface on the front of it that's like a knowledgeable other. Mm -hmm. It's almost perfectly Vygotskyan, <laughs> it's at GTB. Now we have a whole podcast about that with John Helmer. Mm -hmm. Uh, on social constructivism, the last one we did, the great mental learning thing. So I think there's yourself, you know, there's those podcasts. There are other people in the field, too, especially on Twitter, I feel, good people. I would also go to the Lex, if you're interested, in ethics of AI. Then again, I wrote a big piece, a big blog on this, but it's not me saying I, I've said what I believe in, but I've given references to some of the big hitters on that issue. So you really should listen to, on podcasting, uh, Lex Friedman, who is an AI expert who does podcasts with other AI people. He did one on Sam Allen very recently. Brilliant podcast on the guy who actually gave us OpenAI and how it was built, how they're using human beings to put guardrails in place, the launch strategy, the structure of OpenAI. And then you've also got the skeptics uh, like uh, uh, Kulkowski, you know, the people who've been writing about how this is going to uh, escape onto the internet, get sentience, and start to kill us all. <laughs> That's his view. <laughs> I think I think he's like a he's like one of these like, nerdy kids who have read far too much science fiction and starts to project ghosts into the machine for me. And but but to be fair, listen to the guy. You know, listen to the debate. Open your ears up to even things you disagree with. So I think you can take deep dives in any one of these things online now, and you can even go on to open uh, Chat GTP and ask it questions around this. Uh, it only gives you data if it's Chat GTP three up to two thousand and twenty one, but. Mm. So you might not get the contemporary stuff. That's why I'm saying look at blogging, look at Twitter, look at social media, look at YouTube. All these things are there. As you know, David, you do this for mm -hmm. real. 
And uh, so I think that's the that that would be my recommendation. Get to grips, but do it with a strategic purpose in mind. Mm -hmm. How am I going to guide my ship as L and D through these into these uncharted waters? Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Uh, thanks, Donald. And I'll be um, uh, furiously seeking uh, those uh, uh, those links and uh, and popping them in the show notes as well because uh, I, I yeah I completely concur. I think that we're we're all we've all got to learn. Uh, this and there's uh, there is no getting off this uh, this ship. Um, we're uh, we're only going one way. Uh, but Donald, thank you very much uh, for uh, for agreeing to do this on short notice and for being a guest again on the Learning and Development Podcast. Yeah, pleasure, David. It's uh, it, you know I, I'll repeat this because I think it's worth repeating is that you have a very good reputation for doing this well, uh, as is John Helmer and others. There are a few people who are doing the podcasting well, and uh, I I would hope that people take that medium more seriously in learning, but also to for their own personal learning, because I certainly do. I listen to lots of them, you know? Mm. And uh, so well done on that, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Every year, there's something new. But generative AI is not just the shiny new thing in L&D. It's going to affect all of us, at work and in our personal lives. There'll be no escaping the influence of generative AI, and it will have a big impact on L&D. I hope this conversation goes a long way to separating the signal from the noise and helping you to see the opportunity beyond faster courses, because I think it's going to do wonders for us and I hope you see that too. If this conversation has whet your appetite for good quality L&D chat and you'd like to get involved, you can now join the L&D Collective, of which I'm an active member. Join me and thousands of L&D peers via the link to the L&D Collective in the show notes. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, perhaps to suggest topics you'd like to hear discussed, you can tweet me at David in Learning and connect on LinkedIn. Again, you'll find links in the show notes. And goodbye for now.